series called Kingdom Culture, and I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Chapter 9, we'll get there eventually, but um, I want to start off by just kind of reminding you about the the vision for this series. You know, God's kingdom is, is out there, it's in the future, it's coming, but it's also right here, right now. And so we've been talking about what does it mean to live in the right here, right now expression of God's kingdom. And last week I talked about the fact that the right here, right now expression is love. It begins with love. It begins with receiving the lavish, over-the-top love of God. That's where it begins. Uh, But this morning, what we look at is a second component of living inside God's kingdom. That is bringing a culture of honor around you. Now, uh, we had an interesting experience um, recently. We hosted a birthday party. Uh, here at Grace. Um, As you know, there is uh, the Washington County Emergency Shelter, which is right in our neighborhood. And uh, there was a boy there who was about nine or 10 years old um, who had not been reconnected to his dad yet. And we went over to find out how we could help at the shelter. And we saw this boy really clinging to the director of the Washington County Emergency Shelter. We said, "How, how can we help? How can we help him? So we uh, got to thinking, we hosted a birthday party for him, five o'clock on a Wednesday night, and he came over, and we had our staff there, some of our staff kids there, some grace people there. We hosted a birthday party. We had a lot of people at, on that playground. And when this boy understood that the birthday party was for him, he sort of freaked out with like maybe embarrassment and maybe a little bit of shame. And he ran across the playground and he buried his face in the mulch. Buried his face in the mulch. And so we realized, okay, we've got to be really, really wise in this. And so we, we continued to play and have a good time. And we brought him inside, had cake and ice cream and had presents for him. When he realized that he was genuinely loved by this group, you can't imagine the change that came over him. A wonderful change. And I look at that as being a microcosm of how bringing a culture of honor into a place or bringing a culture of honor around you can have a massive, make a massive impact on how people perceive who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, if life is all about me, it's all about my abandonment, uh, my advancement. If it's all about my agenda, I'm going to be clueless about what, I, what culture I am creating around me. It's all going to be a, a, about me. I'm going to be at the center of that culture. However, if I'm conscious that I live inside the kingdom presence of God, and God loves me, and God lavishes love upon me, then I'm going to have an abundance mindset, and I'm going to want to give honor to those around me because I have been the recipient of honor from the God of the universe. And that's what we want to talk about today, how Jesus created a culture of honor in a really powerful way. But I want to start by telling you about the story. Um, and I want to give, give you a wide-angle lens on the story of the transfiguration. And it begins back in the home, his hometown of Capernaum. Uh, Jesus has performed one of his most astonishing mir- miracles. It's the feeding of the 5,000. If you were there at the feeding of the 5,000, you would have seen about 15,000 people there, maybe 20,000 people there. We're talking 
as many people as would be at a college basketball game because it was 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. It was a massive group that was there. And Jesus was walking around, enjoying the crowds, loving the crowds. And then when they were hungry, when they were hungry, he began to feed them. This boy comes by with two loaves, uh, and five loaves and two fishes, and he begins to, to feed the people. And there's massive leftovers after he's done. And what Jesus is doing is he's declaring the fact that he is God. Just like God provided manna in the wilderness, Jesus multiplies bread by the Sea of Galilee. He's declaring who he is as God. And guess what? The disciples don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand that they live in the natural, but they can depend upon Jesus in the supernatural at the same time. They don't get it. So Jesus uh, does, uh, does another miracle, goes to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the home of uh, some of the th three of the, uh, of the 12 disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, and Jesus heals a blind man. And you think about that, a blind man, this guy does not have light coming into his optic nerve. The, what's coming into his eye is not digitized by the optic nerve into the brain. He sees nothing. And Jesus does a restorative miracle and brings him back to the place where he can see. It's a stunning miracle. And what Jesus is doing, again, he's declaring who he is as God. Just as God says, let there be light, the Son of God is bringing light to blind eyes. But the disciples are still not getting it. And here's the question that they're asking that I think we ask as well. How do you live in this present world but also live in the realm of the supernatural at the same time? That is not an easy thing for a Christian to learn when he comes to Christ. It's not easy. Or the question, how do you live responsibly in this world and at the same time live powerfully in Jesus' kingdom presence? We, we live in a world where there is cause and effect. We live in a world where you sow and you reap. Okay, so how do I live in that world and live in the Jesus' supernatural kingdom presence at the same time? How do I do that? That is a, a skill that must be developed through discipleship. Now, to resolve this, Jesus is not going to make things easier. He's going to make things harder. In fact, he's going to make them much harder. What he does after these two miracles is he takes them up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. From uh, Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles. And I can just imagine Jesus saying, okay, guys, gear up, get your backpacks on. We're going to trek up to Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles away, roughly a two-day trip, hard trip, and all the way they're going there, I can imagine the disciples saying, why are we going here? Like, this is a really bad place. This is a place with a really bad reputation. Why is Jesus taking us to this terrible place? Well, Caesarea Philippi is a place with a big rock cliff, and there are caves into that cliff, and they thought that those caves were portals into the underworld. Uh, this place was actually um, originally called Panias. It was dedicated to the shepherd god Pan, part goat, part human being. And the ancients believed that those portals were caved into the underworld. Like there was, there was real power and evil in those 
caves. So in the ancient world, what they did was they built temples uh, against the rock face at Caesarea Philippi. And it, it, all sorts of terrible things would take place inside these temples with temple prostitution. And, and it, it was a place of, of darkness and a place of evil. So they arrive at the city, they go to the city square, and Jesus begins to ask them a series of questions. Who do people say that I am? They give a response. Who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were struggling with that in the previous two miracles. Peter got it. Sort of. Sort of. Uh, I can imagine Peter looking at that rock and Peter saying, um, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That God, Pan, is dead. Zeus had a temple there as well. That God, Zeus, is dead. You are the Son of the living God. You're alive and you're with us. Okay, that's good. That's good. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. The rock is the rock of his identity, but there's a wonderful illustration of this big rock right there in front of them. So Peter is starting to get it. I can live in the natural and the supernatural at the same time because Jesus is, is right here with me. But the disciples still don't get it because Jesus, well, Peter wants to control Jesus immediately after that incident. Lord Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. I don't know if I can help it. He wants to control him. So the disciples still don't get it. How do you live in the natural and the supernatural at the same time? So Jesus makes it even harder. He makes it even harder. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what Jesus is going to do is he is going to unmask kingdom reality right in front of their very eyes because he's going to take them up to Mount Hermon, the place of the transfiguration. I've got to stop here just for a second because if you go to Israel, the traditional place of the transfiguration is not Mount Hermon. It is Mount Tabor, way far to the south. And there is actually a church on the top of Mount Tabor, the church of the transfiguration. It's pretty clear that the transfiguration did not take place down in Tabor, but took place on Mount Hermon because Mount Hermon is right next to Caesarea Philippi, and yet it would take about six days to hike up there if you were in the ancient world because that's, that's a long way. You look at that mountain on the screens, that's a, that's a long way up there. Clearly, uh, he is transfigured on top of Mount Hermon. But look, this is an even more evil place than Caesarea Philippi. The reason why is because according to the traditions, particularly the book of 1st Enoch, the place where the demons came down in Genesis chapter 6 to cohabit with the women was on Mount Hermon. And there were 20 some odd altars on Mount Hermon dedicated to various different evil demonic beings. So the disciples are thinking, we're pretty freaked out about Caesarea Philippi. Now we're going up on Mount Hermon, the, the, the place of, of evil? I, I mean, why are we doing this? Because Jesus is going to demonstrate that he is over and above all earthly powers. 828, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. I'm sorry, that's Mark 9, verse 1, Mark 9, verse 2. 
As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus is unmasking spiritual reality. The disciples did not understand how to live in the natural and the supernatural in Capernaum. They didn't understand it when he was, did the miracle of the blind guy in Bethsaida. Didn't really understand it totally at Caesarea Philippi. Now what he wants to do is he wants to show kingdom reality right here, right now, right in front of their very eyes. And so uh, he does this in three powerful ways. First, he shimmers with light. He shimmers with light. He gleams with luminescence. He shines like fire. And if you were to look at him, that's a pretty good illustration there on the screens, he looks like a pillar of fire, shining luminescence. And the disciples immediately would have connected that to the wilderness wanderings in Exodus, where the pillar of fire was above the tabernacle by night, and the cloud of glory was there by day. Jesus is God. And then there's a cloud that begins to descend the entire mountain a little bit later in this story. And immediately the disciples would have connected the cloud to the Shekinah glory cloud in the Old Testament, again, that hovered above the tabernacle. Jesus is making this bold claim to be the God of the universe. And because he appears with Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah look to Jesus for leadership, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who is the leader over the law and the prophets. I'm the inspirer of God's word, his Torah. So these are three glimpses of deity that Jesus gives. He's unmasking his kingdom reality on that mountain. It's right there, present with him. Is it coming in the future? Of course it's coming in the future. It's definitely coming. A day has been fixed in the future when the kingdom will come. But Jesus is showing my kingdom presence is here, right here, right now. You can depend upon me even as you go about your daily life. You can pray for my resources and my power. So let me go back and define the kingdom again. It's now and it's later. We know it's coming later. Jesus um, predicted it's coming. He prophesied it's coming. John in the book of Revelation prophesies a millennial kingdom. His kingdom is definitely coming. What the transfiguration is designed to do is say that while the kingdom is coming, it's here now. All the time that they were walking with Jesus, his kingdom power was present for answered prayer, for intervention in difficult situations, for fellowship when they needed fellowship. His kingdom presence was, was there, and it's, and it's always there. And they needed to see that, a demonstration of that, even as Jesus would mask his glory and continue to do his ministry. And what Jesus wants them to do and us to do is to live in that constant kingdom presence. Again, I say this a lot, but you know, invisible things are very real. Wi-Fi signals are very real. It's, they're invisible. Radio signals are very real. They're invisible. 
Love is real. It's invisible. You can't see love, but you can sure feel it when it's there. Hot and cold are real. You can't see hot. You can't see whole, but hot and cold create cultures in and of themselves. When you're around a hot fire on a cold day, there's a culture created by the heat that draws people into it. Invisible things are very real. And Jesus' invisible kingdom is very real, and he wants us to live in that kingdom presence. So he unmasks kingdom reality so they can see it up close and personal. That leads us to a question. And the question is, what then is the culture of the kingdom? What's the culture of the kingdom? Well, organizations always have cultures. You look at these four logos up on the screens, and immediately you know something about the cultures of those organizations. ConocoPhillips is not Microsoft. Microsoft is not Apple. Apple is not Philips 66. The cultures of those organizations are all very different. You feel it before you articulate it. All right, here's this. Presidential administrations always have cultures. You look at those four pictures and you think, I remember that culture. I remember that culture. We're living in that culture. You intuit certain cultures before you articulate the differences between them. My four children, all born into the same family. We go visit their houses. There are slightly different cultures in the families of our four kids. And you always, you always feel cultures before you can describe what they are. Well, we see honor in this story in three ways. First of all, notice that the father honors the son. He says, this is my, I'm, I'm compiling three transfiguration accounts. But God the Father says, this is my beloved son. He's my chosen one. He's the one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, that gives us a brief understanding of the culture of the kingdom. The Father honors the Son. I, I find that amazing that at the very center of the universe, there is a God who is reality, who is personal, who is in relationship, and He honors those with whom He is in relationship. In other words, reality is honoring relationships. I mean, I find that to be, to be amazing. What is honor? Honor is valuing somebody because of their personhood. Just because they're made in the image of God. You value them because of their personhood. You express honor verbally. You express honor in acts of service. You express honor in nonverbal situations. You express honor. Here's an example. You may have seen the miniseries called The Crown. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a great miniseries. Winston Churchill on the left is the statesman. Queen Elizabeth on the right is the 20-year-old newly crowned queen. And in a scene in the miniseries, Winston Churchill has to honor Queen Elizabeth, who is in front of him. And Queen Elizabeth is actually asking Winston Churchill to honor her, not because it's, it's her, but because she is the queen representing the country. 
and you see the awkwardness with which Winston Churchill is going from his brash, out there, lionish personality and humbling himself because he knows it is the right thing to honor the monarch of the United Kingdom. He's honoring her because of her position. He has way more experience. He has way more maturity. He has way more ability to lead. But she's the queen, and he honors her because of her position. Part of the reason why we, as followers of Jesus, honor other people is because everybody we meet, without exception, is created in the image of God. Everybody, without exception, has been the recipient of the death of Jesus Christ. Not all have received the death of Jesus Christ, but Jesus died for all so that all might have an opportunity to receive him. God the Father has already loved the entire world. And we as followers of Jesus, I believe, are obligated to honor everybody we come in contact with simply because they're created in the image of God and they've been died for by Christ. So, um, if I'm going to become a person living in the kingdom, I, I need to be practicing the discipline of honor. So, one of the things I do with my kids is I write handwritten notes. Handwritten notes, you know, are sort of, you know, sort of gone by the wayside in, in, in a way, in a way. And so, I've made it a point to, to write hand, handwritten notes. Now, sometimes my kids acknowledge those notes, sometimes they don't. I don't care because I'm doing this, I'm doing this because this is the kind of person that I want to be. And I know that if I take the time out to write a handwritten note of appreciation, of honor to my kids, I, I know that I am becoming the kind of person that is honoring and I will enhance that relationship and multiply honor within our family. Now sometimes I get a gift in return. Sometimes my kids will take a picture of the handwritten note and they will text me a note back. I love that. Sometimes I find that those notes have been pinned up on refrigerators or put on bookshelves and like they might be pretty old, but they're treasured, they're valued. I, I want to do those things as a discipline that create honor. Sometimes I try to find new ways of expressing honor to my, to my wife. Sometimes those words connect with her. Sometimes they don't. Okay, that's okay. That's all right. I, I try to learn because it's not about me fishing for responses from her. It's not what, I'm, not what I'm, sometimes I do that. I admit that. But what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to create this environment of honor within our marriage that radiates out from us. Sometimes my honor is tested. There was one time where I did a funeral, uh, not somebody in this church, but I did a funeral and the ex-wife of the deceased showed up and she ripped into me for saying good things about her ex. Um, I was pretty speechless about that. Um, since their divorce, the ex had, had really changed um, and had become a follower of Christ. Very far from perfect, okay, but he had made some changes. Didn't matter apparently to the ex because she was mad at me for honoring him at his memorial service. And I had a choice. My choice is, 
Am I going to respond contemptuously? Felt like it. Or am I going to convey honor? Because this aggrieved person is still somebody who's made in the image of God and somebody for whom Christ died. All I'm saying is this. When you live in a culture of honor, when you live in a kingdom culture, you are proactively wanting to express honor around you. I want to show you another way that honor shows up in the transfiguration account. Jesus honors Moses and Elijah. There appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. How did he know it was Moses and Elijah? I, I've, I've been wondering about that. Like, did they have jerseys on, you know? Moses, 76, Elijah, number 18. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how he knew that it was Moses and Elijah, except they must have been talking, and they overheard the discussions uh, between Jesus and, and, and the two. How does Jesus honor Moses and Elijah? For starters, they're alive. They're alive. The human heart hungers for life beyond the grave. The human heart hungers for immortality. And here we see the honoring of Moses and Elijah by the fact that they're, they're alive in the presence of King Jesus. Notice also that not only are they alive, but they're standing. I, I have to tell you, you know, I believe they're up on Mount, Mount Hermon. Of the 20 excavated places, shrines on Mount Hermon, I promise you that those who used to worship there would get on their face and grovel before the gods represented by those shrines. I promise you that that took place. Why aren't Moses and Elijah groveling before King Jesus. Jesus has honored them as his joint heirs. He's honored them as people who are valuable and worthy of honor because of who they are in Christ. He honors them. Notice also another way the culture of honor shows up is that they're conversing about significant things. Not only are they alive and are they standing, but Jesus is conversing with them about upcoming events, like the most important upcoming event in history, his death and resurrection. He honors them. Notice how honor shows up in another way. Jesus honors his disciples. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good, for us. It's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Terrified. You know, Peter had the habit of kind of putting his foot in his mouth. And actually, what Jesus says here is not that stupid. It's not that stupid. But the way that he blurted this out was the timing was certainly wrong. He's thinking about tabernacles and the Feast of Tabernacles and all of that. He's just, first thing that comes to mind, he blurts out. So does Jesus say, shut up, Peter. Zip it. You're always doing this. This is not the right time to do this. No, no. Instead, what God says is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He doesn't, Jesus does not shame Peter for stupid things that he does. By the way, by the way, you know, one of the ways that we dishonor people is we shame people for what we perceive to be their stupidity. That really opens people up, right? That really makes them feel safe and like they want to open up and share. We rip people for things that they do, mistakes that they make, 
No, that, that only increases the fact they're not going to communicate to us. And so what, what God does is he, is he says, Peter, Peter, this is my son. Listen to him. He's saying this with love, even though Peter makes sort of a, sort of a dumb statement. This is not the only place where we see this culture of honor. Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? The kingdom. What's the character of this kingdom? It's a kingdom where God the Father is deeply in love with his son, and there's a dynamic honoring that continually takes place between father and son. And I would add son and spirit, spirit and father, spirit and son as, as, as well. That's a, that verse is a vivid picture of going from darkness to light, going from lack of love, lack of honor to a place of honor and a place of, of goodness. Bottom line is this, as we actively and intentionally live in Jesus' kingdom presence, he inspires us to manifest a culture of honor all around us. Now that leads to our takeaways. What are the takeaways? I, th I think I've got five of them, but here's what it looks like in practice. Number one, the opposite of honor is contempt. And the first takeaway is see how you do not express honor in your life. Confront yourself about when you don't do this. You know, what, what contempt says is, you know what, I'm, I'm better and you're worse. I'm superior, you're inferior. But we would never say that out loud because that sounds horrible to say that out loud. But we would feel it on the inside. And so contempt begins with a silent judgment. This person in front of me, not as, not as well-educated, don't have as much money, not as amazingly handsome as I am, not as pretty as I am, not as intelligent as I am. You'd never say this out loud. You'd never say this out loud. But I know that many of you have gone that direction when you've been around somebody, somebody that you, you just are, the human heart is drawn toward contempt. And uh, John Gottman, who writes a lot on marriage and relationships, says the, 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 the major negative emotion that couples have toward each other is contempt. Expressions of contempt is the highest way to predict divorce in marital therapy. Um, and we, we engage in this all the time in our society. A liberal group will be contemptuous against a conservative group. A conservative group who is above 60 will be contemptuous of conservative groups who are younger than 20. There are there are people who are military hawks who are contemptuous against military doves and vice versa. You see this all over the place in our culture where it's black and white, it's either or, and you're contemptuous against those people who disagree with you, and it's worst on Facebook. Where you can get in a Facebook thread where you can start acting and saying things that are highly contemptuous, and when followers of Jesus do this about theological issues or political issues or cultural issues, calling each other names, it's tragic. And you, you see it, you see it played out 
all the time. I, I got one word to categorize this contemptuous culture we live in. It's sin. It's sin. And if you and I are living in the kingdom presence of God, we have to guard against contempt and we have to ratchet up honor and the ways that we treat people. You know, it's very, it's very easy to get into a kind of a cool, trendy, contemptuous, cynical ethos in our life. Don't do it. The kingdom culture that you are in is a culture designed for honor. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is be convinced of your identity in Christ. If you're going to be a, a conduit of a culture of honor, um, you have to be strong inside yourself knowing who you are in Christ. So one of the ways you do this is you, buy, you make these affirmations. I am in Christ. I am his adopted son or daughter. I am eternally loved. I am a joint heir with Jesus. I am destined for greatness. Uh, I'll receive a resurrection body when I die. Until then, I've got a powerful role to play as a conduit of honor. But those people who are conduits of honor are people who are continually affirming and reaffirming who they are in Christ. I was in, in high school, and the first person in high school that I really understood this from was my high school leader named Wynn Couchman. I was 17. She was probably 47, 48 years old. Wynn Couchman was the most unlikely high school youth leader. She was amazing in how she conveyed the abundance of who she was in Christ, and therefore she honored people with the abundance of who they were in Christ. So in 1999, we go up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I introduce my family to Wynn Couchman. And Wynn Couchman lavishes honor on Cindy and on my four kids. Lavishes honor. How do you think I felt? Wow, this is awesome. I love this. I love Wynn Couchman. About six, eight months ago, I reconnected with her. And uh, Wynn was 92 years old in a retirement community. Husband has Alzheimer's. And when was the same way? I got on the phone trying to encourage her. I was on the phone for an hour. She was encouraging me. Because she is so abundantly clear about who she is in Christ, she was a very, very honoring person in all of her, all of her relationships. Third takeaway is to express honor, you got to verbalize it. you got to verbalize it, and then you have to act. you got to speak it. And then you've got to do it. Um, notice how God the Father says, verbally, this is my beloved son in whom I will please. Listen to him. Honor has got to be verbalized. Now, I've talked to people who've said, oh, this is just not me. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at letting my words out. I get a little embarrassed. Oh, I, just, I, I can't do this. I, I kind of feel a little weird about saying these kind of things. And my encouragement to you is, You've got to be disciplined to start small and then grow. It is a discipline. It is a discipline. There may be some people out there who are verbally effusive with their praise, but genuine honor is a discipline that you grow in. Start small. Start with your nieces and nephews. Start with your dog. Start with your pets. Start with your young, your young children with whom it's easy. Start with your... Adult friends, 
Do it with your spouse. You, you, have, you have to do this. Let me tell you about one of the coolest things that happened to me. Last year, last year, uh, my four kids were together, and for my birthday, they sat at the table, turned on the video camera, and they, one by one, expressed honor toward me. Now, my, my, my kids do this better than I do, but they expressed honor toward me. I won't play the video, but that was the scene on the video. That's the, that's the screenshot of the video. Eight adults expressing honor to dad. Uh, I've watched that video many, many times. Now that video, that video did something to me because what it made me want to do is honor my wife who gave me those four kids. Here's the thing about honor. What honor does is honor causes you to want to reach out and pass it on and do it more. That's what honor does. Um, final thing, for, well, fourth takeaway. When you live in a culture of honor, you bring a little bit of heaven down to earth. You bring a little bit of heaven down, down to earth. Remember what Jesus says um, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be great. May your name be great. May your kingdom come. And that is a prayer that his kingdom would come now even as, as it is going to come later. But we, kn we know it means now as well as later because he's asking us to pray for daily bread, things that are now, things that are daily. May your kingdom come now means, God, may your kingdom break through into my life right now. May your kingdom presence and power break in like immediately, like right now, so that I see your kingdom breakthrough in this situation. What would it be like if God broke through in a certain way in your job? What would it be like if God broke through in a fresh way in your marriage? What would it be like if God broke through in a fresh way in the lives of your kids? What would it be like if God broke through in a fresh way in, in your plans for your future? Opening up a new door. That's what he's asking us to do. Pray that God's kingdom would break through here now, dramatically, maybe quietly, so that we would encounter His kingdom presence and power in the present as a foretaste of what's coming in the future. So let me take you back to that, that party we had at Grace, little nine-year-old boy living as an orphan, starved for love. We tried to convey a, a sense of honor toward, toward Him. We found out recently that he was reconnected with his dad out in, out in Arizona. You know, so it was just an opportunity we had to show him honor in light of something that God was doing in his life. Well, let's, let's pray. And I would just like to kind of bring us to a moment of silence as we pray. And what I would like for you to do is think about one person right now that you need, you need to show honor. Maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow. Father God, I pray that whatever name you bring to our mind, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to convey honor to that person. 
We pray that we would convey the kind of honor that would build trust in us, trust in you, and a sense of abundance about your goodness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you, Rob. Um, I'm Mike Sorensen. I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Small Groups. I wanted to give you guys just a couple of things. First, welcome to anybody, everybody here. It's great to see you. And um, if we have any newcomers, I would recommend, if you pull out your bulletin, there's a couple of things I wanted to draw your attention to. First of all, the Connect card. We've been talking about this some. Certainly, if you are new and we don't know you yet, please fill that out. Put it in the uh, clear box at the back because we would love to get to know you, to, to welcome you here and let you know how excited we are to have you part of us, part of our family here. But even if you're not uh, new, if you have a prayer request, if you have any need at all, we, we would love for all people to, to let us know things that are going on, things we love praying over the prayer requests we've been getting from those. So, it's, so please keep those coming.